Now, I'm starting a new sermon series today that's going to take us all the way through the rest of the summertime, where we're going to be looking at the life of David together. We're going to look all the way through David's life. And David, to say David is an important character in the Bible would be a huge understatement. We have more biographical material about David than any other person in the Bible except for Jesus. And outside the narratives of 1 and 2 Samuel, where we'll spend most of our time, David gets brought up in the Bible 241 more times, including 182 in the Old Testament and 59 times in the New Testament. And I just <clears throat> love David's story. David's story is truly a Hollywood epic, right? David begins with this obscure shepherd boy, a runt of, David, of Jesse's seven sons, and later in the story becomes this warrior we'll see next week who defeats this massive giant named Goliath. And then he goes on to become the most popular guy in all of Israel, and then he goes on to become the most popular king in Israel's history, in addition to also being the most prolific songwriter that maybe the world has ever known. In fact, 3,000 years later, we are still singing the lyrics to David's songs. Now, God describes David as a man after my own heart, a man after my own heart, yet his personal sin devastated not only his own life, but the life of the nation itself. But truly, before I can jump into David, we have to talk for a minute about Saul. We got to first talk about Saul before we can understand David. So Saul is the first king of Israel. And Saul comes to power in Israel during this bloody up and down time period in Israel's history, where the people were being governed by what we call the judges. <clears throat> and there's an account of this in a book called Judges, okay? It's a period of time of 200 plus years of these up and down cycles of obedience and disobedience where God would raise up a tribal leader of the Israelites when they'd cry out to God and that tribal leader would come, lead them into victorious battle against their enemies. There'd be a period of good and then there'd be this cycle that'd go back and forth and back and forth. And now, after all of this time, the people of Israel have grown weary with this cycle. And they believe the solution to this problem, the solution to their issues, is that they would have a king like the rest of the world. They look at the Canaanites and the people groups around them and they think, we need to be governed, we need to have a, a nation, a proper nation, led by a king the way everybody else around us. And so, this reality, friends... This leadership crisis that's going on is actually familiar to us even all these years uh, past this time period. See, Israel's looking for a good leader. They want a leader to lead them that will have integrity. But because there's so many cultural influences at play, the Israelite nation ends up choosing leaders based on the wrong criteria. Okay, and so we're going to look in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 5. It says... Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. <clears throat> How would you like that one? Behold, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the nations. 
Now, this should bother us the way that it bothered Samuel, because up until this point in Israel's history, God himself had been their king, had been their ruler. And God had desired to teach the Israelite people how to live life differently than all the nations around them. God's desire was to bless his people in order that his people would then in turn be a blessing to the world around them. But instead of being a blessing, instead of them being influential to the other nations, they were being influenced. And so they looked at these other nations and they said, hey, we need a king like everybody else, especially the Canaanites who were putting the most pressure on them. See, their hearts were set on their own understanding, and they were no longer aligned with God. They were thinking, man, it's, we don't want to follow God. We, it's abstract. We want to have a king. He'll tell us what to do and lead us to prosperity. So the Lord says to Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 9, the Lord says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So even in this moment where God says, yes, do what they're asking you to do, he says, but warn them. Warn them first. Give them another chance to hear your warning. And so Samuel goes and warns them. 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 22. He said, these will be the ways of a king who will reign over you. you will take your son, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cookers and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. He will put them in his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you'll cry out because, you're, because of your king whom you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So the people want a king. They've been warned. They've been warned by God. They've been given. A, I mean, you heard how many warnings were in there, right? He, they warned them and they said, nope, we still want a king. So 1 Samuel 9.2, it says, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Sounds like great criteria for a king. So based on his appearance and his size and his pedigree, Saul is chosen to be the first king of Israel. And Saul actually starts out pretty good. 
When you read the account, Saul starts off pretty good. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He begins to prophesy. He leads the armies of Israel in successful battle campaigns. And you think, okay, this is going to work out. But the truth is Saul is deeply flawed. And the entire first half of the book of Samuel is dedicated to repeating this character study of all of the failures of King Saul. In essence, Saul has this root character problem of pride and arrogance. He thinks he knows better than everyone else, including God. Saul is a classic narcissist. And the very beginning of this tragedy, it's so sad, he's not even aware of the effects that his pride and arrogance has on his family and on the people. And the story shows us how blind he actually is to his pride and his arrogance. If he believes he's in the right, then any means will justify his activity and his actions. And this becomes a huge problem, both for uh, him personally and for the nation. And in fact, what's interesting, at the start of the book, you have this story about a barren woman named Hannah who gives birth to, uh, eventually, to uh, Samuel. And Hannah, in this prophetic song, declares this truth that we see later in the book of James, that God actually actively opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. And that's really going to be the story of Saul's life. As Saul's story progresses, he makes more and more mistakes until finally his mistakes get big. Like God gives him a direct order when it comes to the Amalekites, and he just ignores them. He doesn't listen to God, and because of that, Samuel shows up, Samuel pronounces that this day, God is removing from you the kingdom of Israel, and he's giving it to someone else. And on that day, God speaks again to Samuel and tells Samuel this. 1 Samuel 16.1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So now Samuel goes on this secret mission. You can read this this week in the story. It's really cool. I mean, you don't want Saul to find out that you're heading to this place to anoint the next king, right? So he goes on this secret mission. He arrives there in Bethlehem and he says to Jesse, hey, Jesse, I need you to get your family together because I'm going to anoint one of them to be the next king over Israel. And Jesse immediately thinks, oh, I know which one. I know exactly who you're here for. I'll bring him in. He's my firstborn son. He's the pride of my family. He's the pride of my home. Uh, Elab, he, he's the one. Eli, Eliab is the one. He's the one that you want. So he sends for Eliab and it says this, when he came, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab looked like a king. He was tall. He was good looking. He had a commanding presence. His name means God is my father. This has to be the right guy, right? First Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, Samuel, of all people, should have known better than this, right? This is Saul 2.0. 
This is Saul revisited once again. He looks like a king on the outside, but he doesn't have a heart for God. He's not God's choice because God doesn't look at the external. He looks at our heart. Samuel and the people were looking for something different. Again, this is the influence of the culture around them. This guy looks like a king. He acts like a king. He has the right pedigree. But if you trace his story, uh, Eliab's story, later on you're going to see multiple different times that he actually is quite critical and arrogant, and he distrustful of God in some pretty key places. He may be an all-star athlete, he may be on the who's who's list of the nation of Israel, but he's not who God is looking for. And so Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? Jesse sends in his secondborn. God says, nope, not him either. Send for another one. They do this seven times. 1 Samuel 16.10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. At this point, can you imagine how awkward this space is? Seven sons have crossed. And he said, nope, 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 nope. And I love the next question. First Samuel 16, 11. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? Like, is this it? Have you forgotten about any sons, Jesse? And Jesse says, well... Actually, yeah, there is one more, 1 Samuel 16, 11. And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. This word here in Hebrew for youngest is this word, uh, hackathon. And hackathon is a very rare word in Hebrew. It's actually a blend up of words. The word young, it, it conveys the idea of unimportance and, and of being the lowest rank or the least likely, all in this one word. Eugene Peterson, in his message paraphrase, translates that Hebrew word as runt, runt of the litter. Okay? So you get the idea of who David is. He, he's the least of. He's the less. He's the youngest. He's the insignificant one. So insignificant was David in his family's eyes that when the most famous guy in all of Israel shows up at their home and says, get your sons, they leave David out in the field. He's the only one that isn't called into the household. 1 Samuel 16, 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Is it just me or does Samuel strike you as a little bit frustrated here? Jesse, clearly I said, bring all of your sons and you did not listen. So we're going to stand here. We're not even going to sit down until you go out and bring him here. It doesn't matter how long it takes. 1 Samuel 16, 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he, David, of course, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, ruddy, like the last term we just looked at, is really an unusual word. Some translators translate it to mean he was redheaded and freckled. In fact, it's the same word that was used to describe Esau when Esau was born that the Bible translates as hairy and red, red red-haired. It's the same word, but other people say it means that he had light complexion. Other people say it means he was fair-skinned. Here's the thing. I don't know what it means, but David was ruddy, okay? David was ruddy. And... He had beautiful eyes. 
Now, if you are an NIV reader, it says he was of fine appearance. But the actual text says he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Here's what you're supposed to get. David's cute, okay? David doesn't look like a valiant warrior or a valiant king. When you are choosing a warrior king to lead your people, you want a man that strikes fear into other men. Saul stood shoulders to head taller than anyone else. He's a powerful man. You're going to find out later when David tries to put his armor on, it's comical, okay? Saul's huge and strong. David is ruddy, okay? He's good looking. He's got beautiful eyes. He's totally different than the people's choice. In fact, three different times, the story's going to tell you how good looking David was. Right here, it mentions his fine appearance, when Saul sends for David from the fields to bring him in to play harp for him, they say, hey, there's a good-looking boy out in the, uh, being a shepherd. You should have him come. And later on, when Goliath is standing across from David, one of his taunts is, why would you send this beautiful boy to fight me? Okay? So let's keep going. 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13. And the Lord says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, let me ask you a question. Why all this drama? Why all this rigmarole? Why, if God knew David was the one, did he not send Samuel and say, hey, because remember, he gave him specific instructions. Go to this town, find this guy. It's one of his sons. Why didn't he just add in his name is David? Okay? Why? Because this part is really important for you and I to understand. And it's the first point in my message today if you're taking notes. The first point about David's life, and that's true for you and I as well, number one is God chooses the unlikely. God chooses the unlikely. This is the, one of the most consistent, reoccurring points in all of the Bible. God chooses the unlikely. It literally runs from the first a book in Genesis all the way to the back. In Genesis, God chooses the humble, meager offering of Abel and not the rich offering of Cain. He bestows the blessing on the younger brother Jacob, not the firstborn man's man, all-country athlete Esau. He promises the messianic lineage to Leah, not the beautiful Rachel. He leads the exodus by choosing a stammering Moses, not the gifted speaker Aaron. He calls Gideon a mighty warrior while he's hiding out in a wine press and chooses him to lead his nation's army against their enemies. See, this is the beauty of God's grace, and we see it all throughout the Bible. God chooses the unlikeliest of people. See, secular human history has always favored the most beautiful of women and the strongest of men, but God consistently chooses the Jacob's, Leah's, Hannah's, and David's to build his kingdom. God consistently chooses the unlikely, the underdog, the overlooked, so that we trust in his power and his wisdom and not our own. This is how Paul describes it to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is the story of David's life. And here's the second thing that we see that's true of David, that's also true for us. In God's kingdom, character is paramount. Character is paramount. First Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, when God is looking for a leader, when God is looking for a, a person to call his own, he doesn't value the same things that we value. He prioritizes character over charisma. Friends, I cannot tell you how many times this mistake has been made to elevate people based on their charisma when they're lacking in character. But because we need a king that will lead us towards God, we don't need a king that's going to show us how to be smarter, show us how to be stronger, show us how to live a happier life. We need a king that will show us God, that will lead us towards God. That's our ultimate need as humanity, as mankind. Saul had the right appearance, but he didn't have the right character. He didn't have the right heart. See, we are desperate in our need for character. God doesn't want us to find our identity, our security, our happiness in Saul's and Eliab's. He wants us to value what he values, character. So when God is choosing a leader, he doesn't say, wow, this guy looks the part. He's got an impressive resume. What a stunning IQ. Look how tall this guy is. He'd make a great king. Look how articulate, look how commanding this girl is. Look at just how she, she can work the room. God looks at the heart. And he's looking for people who will listen to him and obey him. He's looking for people whom his spirit can dwell and that he can work through us. Which is exactly what happens in verse 13. Because David is a man of integrity and character with a humble heart, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes upon him and stays upon him. Let me ask you, friends, how much time do you spend in your life developing and working on your character? Because see, character is revealed by what we do when no one else is watching. It's the one thing, truly, that you can trick other people on. You can deceive others, but God is not deceived. He sees and he knows what you do in your mind, what you do behind closed doors. And the truth is, oftentimes as humans, if you're anything like me, you want to make other people happy. You want to please others. But God is looking for people who aren't concerned at people-pleasing, but at God-pleasing who will live their life according to His ways, according to His purpose, according to His commands, who will follow Him even and especially when it's hard. You see, character is, also, is often most seen when we are doing what God asks us to do in the midst of trials and difficulty, in the midst of the hard stuff. When you treat someone right who's not treating you right, 
When you stay committed to loving others when they are not loving towards you. When you choose to do good for others while they're treating you as an enemy. 1 Peter 2, 22-23, Peter says this about Jesus. He, Jesus, committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, Jesus is the ultimate example for you and I. He was mistreated more than anyone else I can think of. And yet, even during their mistreatment, he's saying, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Friends, this is not the kind of character that you can muster up on your own. Building character takes constant effort and work and reliance on God, on His Word, and on His Spirit. As you study the Word of God, as you spend time with Him, as you meditate on His Word, as your mind is transformed, as your life is being transformed, as the Spirit has been given the fuel necessary that He can move in your life and remind you of all of these things, your character is growing and developing. But I want to give you a quick warning about character. Character takes a lifetime to build. But in an instant... In an instant, you can see a lifetime of built character washed down the drain. And so we must remain vigilant. And you're going to see how that plays out in this story over the coming weeks. Here's the third lesson from David's life. And this one, some of you are going to understand better than others, but it's really important for us. Character is best formed in the waiting. Verse 13 is crazy. It ends with Samuel, this great prophet. Imagine this moment. Samuel has taken the oil. He's poured it on David's head. It goes flowing down his head. The Holy Spirit of God rushes upon David. This is a pretty grand moment, wouldn't you agree? And so what happens next? Nothing. He doesn't go to the palace. He's not given a robe. He's not, a ring isn't put on his hand. He doesn't have a group that gathers around. No, in fact, the narrative ends there. And in the next verse, it switches to talking about Saul again. And the next thing we know, David is put back out in pasture. Because later on, when Saul sends his men to look for David, they find him with the sheep. So he's anointed with oil. And then he's sent back out to the pasture for months or possibly even years. And the fact is, in verse 19, when they come later to find him, there he is with the sheep. After being anointed with oil, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, he is still chasing around sheep for his father in the desert. And here's what's more. We'll see in future messages in this series that even after this, he gets brought up to the palace and you think, okay, now it's happening. Instead, he's going to be chased as a criminal through the wilderness for over a decade before he finally becomes a king. Can you imagine what this was like for David? Can you imagine being anointed as king, being filled by the Holy Spirit, knowing and understanding your destiny, and then spending decades being pursued and chased, having these highs and lows, defeating giants, becoming a general, defeating armies, hiding in caves? Make no mistake, friends. God uses the pasture or the wilderness 
to prepare his people. This is where really God produces in you the character that you're going to need to lead, to live this Christian life. Chuck Swindoll, in his book about David, says there are really three words that represent this season of David's life. The first one is obscurity. David is invisible at this point. He's just back out in the field with the sheep. The second word is monotony. Imagine, David, what'd you do today? Watch a sheep. What else? Well, I practiced with my slingshot some. What else? Well, I played a couple. You want to hear my new songs I wrote today on the harp? But see, then Chuck Swindoll reminds us the third word, which is really important. It's reality. This is what actually God was doing. In the pasture, God was developing David's skill with the slingshot. That's going to come in handy later. He was developing his skill with song and harp. That's going to come in handy later. He's going to go on to be the world's most famous songwriter. He was developing his courage. In fact, on the day that he goes to fight Goliath, he says, hey, when I was a shepherd, I killed a bear, I killed a lion. It's one of the reasons he had the confidence and the courage to face Goliath because after being filled with the Holy Spirit, the time he spent in the wilderness with the sheep, with the Lord, was a time of preparation, a time of training, a time where God was working in him skills that were going to become necessary later on. And I would say the key skill he was learning was shepherding. He was learning to care for a flock, the same thing that God did with Moses. He sent him out to care for a flock. He spent 40 years learning to be a shepherd because God knows people are stubborn and dumb. And they need people of patience and people of character to stick with us and to lead us and to not give up on us. And so God trains David in the wilderness. In fact, Psalm 78, 78. Through 72 says this, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Where did David learn these skills? Where did David learn how to skillfully shepherd God's people? He learned it in the pasture not in the palace. He learned these skills, not in uh, leadership training courses. He learned them with the sheep. Church, this is still what God does. Hey, moms, what'd you do this week? Oh, it was a full week. I was changing diapers, running around kids. That's part of the story. But you know what really was happening? God was building character in you. See, your work, of course, has value. You are caring for a human being made in the image of God. But in the midst of doing that, you're building also character. Hey, businessman, businesswoman, how was your week? What'd you do? Uh, Same as always. Worked in my dead-end job, just waiting for retirement. Same stuff. No, no, no. God's building character in you. He's training you. He's using your daily life to build into you skills and tools that he's going to use if you will allow him to. He's watching you in small things be faithful so that he can trust you with more. Hey, student, what'd you do this week? Ugh, history was so boring. Calculus. I'm never going to use any of this. That may be true. But in the process, God is building character in you. 
He's forming you. He's making you. This is the rule of your time in the pasture. If you are faithful in small things, God says, I will trust you with bigger things. Now, I'm not talking about big stuff as the world defines big stuff. I'm talking about things of eternal significance. And God says, if you will be faithful in small, I'll give you more. Luke 16.10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. See, when God wants to prepare a person, he sends them first to the pasture. So don't despise your season of waiting. For many of you here today, you feel like you've been in the pasture. You feel like the Lord has spoken to you. He's given you a job. He's given you a purpose. He's given you a plan. And then you think, but why hasn't it happened yet? I've prayed about it. I've been faithful to God and it just hasn't happened. Well, maybe while you're waiting, God is working. And he's developing and he's growing you and your character. Because that's what God cares about more than anything else. It's not about the stuff that you do for him. It's about who you are. He loves you and he's developing your character and your life. See, we have to as a people. Friends, I think this is so important. That we have to really intentionally switch our mindset off of the stuff we do, and on to what is the Lord doing in my life in this season. It's not just about the end result. It's not just about the end goal. You are in a period of training. And by the way, when do you come out of your period of training? When you die. Okay? You graduate. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in. Right? But in this time period, this is always how it's going to be. Abraham and Sarah had to wait for their son, as did Rachel and Hannah. Joseph had to wait for his promotion. Moses had to wait multiple different times for his people to exit slavery and enter into the promised land. Joshua had to wait 40 years under uh, Moses as Moses led the people. Ruth had to wait for her husband. David had to wait to become king. Elijah had to wait for rain. Paul had to wait to be released from prison. Even Jesus had to wait 30 years on this earth before he started his public ministry. And then once he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and you think, okay, now what's going to happen? He's got to go to the wilderness and wait 40 more days. In those times of waiting, these are the places where God is really building in what's necessary for what's to come. It's in faithful actions to their families. Listening and expecting from God, praying without ceasing, uh, not grumbling or complaining, fulfilling the work that God has called them to do. It's not glamorous, it's not showy, it's not exciting, but it's what David was called to do. It's the job God had given him. See, God knew that Abraham and Sarah were going to need decades to learn that God was enough. It wasn't just about the promised son, that God himself was enough. God's going to test them with that after their son is born. Moses needed 40 years in this to learn how to be a shepherd of the sheep. Joshua needed 40 years walking alongside Moses to learn how to have the courage to lead God's people. See, God knows what we need, and he's using the circumstances of our lives to build our character if, again, you will trust the process. You will trust the process. See, the pasture, the wilderness, is God's laboratory for forming our hearts. And I want to be like David. I want to be known as a man after God's own heart. 
And so if we're going to truly be people after God's own heart, then we have to trust God in the midst of situations and circumstances where the outcome isn't, seems all that certain. We have to be faithful. You know, one of the things I learned in this study that I hadn't seen before, do you remember anyone who's read the story, what the circumstances were when we're first introduced to King Saul out on the road where uh, Samuel first sees King Saul, what he's doing? He's pursuing his dad's lost donkeys. That's what he's doing. He's out looking for lost donkeys. In fact, we're introduced as Saul as a failed shepherd, and then we're later introduced to David, a faithful shepherd watching the flock. You see, the little things, friends, matter. The little things that you may see as insignificant matter. God is calling us to be faithful to Him in small things. And if we are willing to, He's saying, I will trust you with more. God took David from the pasture and He made him king. David's job, a shepherd, didn't change. His flock just changed. See, faithfulness in small things sets us up for patterns of faithfulness in bigger things. So don't despise the day of small things. Band, you can come up. This is really critical, friends, for us to understand because I feel like sometimes, as a Western church especially, we can begin to feel like God's missing out. I mean, I'm great and he just hasn't noticed it, right? I'm the solution to all these people's issues, but God's just not paying attention. That's how Saul, actually Saul started out pretty uh, bashful, but later his pride really set in. And so friends, I want to encourage you, if you want to be used by God, if you truly want to be used by God, if you want to say, man, I want to discover God's dream for my life. I want to, to be used by God to do something for the Lord that will have eternal impact. And here's what I'll give you as advice as your pastor. Be faithful to God and what he's placed in front of you. Be faithful at work. Be faithful at home. Be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful to your family. Be faithful with your money. And believe the biblical principle that as you sow, you will reap. As you are faithful to God, you will experience his goodness and his faithfulness. And it's all in his timing. And that's where the real trick comes in here. It's all in his timing. So David stays out in the pasture. I can't imagine what that was like for him. But I know that he remained faithful. So many of us, imagine if you had been anointed king by the head prophet of all of Israel in front of your family, do you think you'd have gone back out to the sheep later that afternoon? But that's exactly what David did. When we meet him next week as he goes to fight Goliath, guess where we're going to find him? Once again, out in the pasture with his dad's sheep. Even when his brothers have gone to war, he's faithful at serving his family. Friends, I just want to encourage you with this as we begin to look at the life of David. I want to ask you, what has God put in your life that he's asking you today to be mindful of and recommit to be faithful to? Is it a relationship? Is it, is it a job? Is it a, a ministry? A service? God's calling us to be a faithful people of character who trust him while we're in the wilderness, and who continue to move forward. Don't harden your heart 
Do not find yourself in that place where you feel like because it's taken too long, because the Bible is full of people who after they gave up hope, who made mistakes along the way because they said, no, we got to make a shortcut for this because clearly God's forgotten about me. And ultimately God fulfills his promises that he's made. And they create for themselves a lot of headaches along the way. Friends, your character matters. 